Welcome to Restart Radio, a very different radio show about gadgets on Resonance 104.4 FM. This is a different show because unlike most, we do not focus on the new shiny, shiny things to buy. We focus on the value in the stuff we already have. The Restart project aims for a shift of behavior towards a more sustainable and happier relationship with electronics. Our monthly community electronics repair events here in London are just the beginning. My name is Ugo Valauri from the Restart project and I'll be your host. I'm joined today by Dave Lukes and Ben Skidmore. Hi. Hi, hi. Welcome. They're both tech professionals and long-time volunteers with the Restart project. In this episode, we're going to talk about giving a second lease of life to computers and reusing them in new ways, in creative ways, including obsolete ones, or those that some people would refer to as obsolete, but might not necessarily be. But first, let's look at some recent tech news with a restart lens. And we're going to start with some very interesting approach to suing manufacturers that comes from France, where a court has indicted Samsung on misleading advertising related to labor rights violations. We've been talking about Samsung in the past and worker rights in other shows, but the latest update is that a French court's investigation of Samsung Electronics has charged the company with making false claims about respecting the rights of workers at its Asian factories when it was actually, in fact, infringing those rights. This is the very first time that investigative authorities in Europe have filed charges against Samsung that pertain to the overall labor environment. If the case goes to court, Samsung will have to directly address charges about exposing workers to chemicals, forcing them to work overtime, and breaking up labor unions, issues it has repeatedly refused to discuss. What do you make of this, Ben? Well, it's really interesting because I'm, you know, I'm pretty cynical, uh, and Samsung are a very big player. So uh, my instant reaction was like, well, I'm sure they're not the only ones. Uh, so, yeah, my first gut instinct was like, this is going to unfold further and go deeper. Which is a great opportunity to talk about false advertising across <laughs> this industry and potentially well beyond it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. And as Ben said, let's be clear, yeah, other employees who, other employers who do bad things to their employees are available. Please don't think that Samsung are necessarily the worst. They may be the biggest. There are plenty of others, too. And also, historically, this goes back a long way. I mean, one example off the top of my head, again, no pointing fingers or anything, IBM back in the 1970s in Silicon Valley. You know, they poisoned the water, they polluted the air, and they gave a lot of their employees cancer. And there were big payouts from that. Now, that was in the USA itself, of course. The further away from where we perceive our you know, news to come from, the easier it is to get away from it, with it. And... The one interesting thing, I mentioned this before uh, to Hugo, is this is the Al Capone method of getting people into court because the French courts can't do anything about the actual labour practices because they're not happening in France. But what can they do? Well, they can sue them for something else. In the same way the US government got Al Capone for tax evasion rather than for mass murder in general being a villain. So hopefully we'll see more of this in the future, ingenious use of laws. Definitely, and this also touches upon the 
difficulties in the double standards that exist yeah. in corporations uh, across the world, where perhaps in Europe it's more likely that they have to follow certain standards for mm -hmm. whatever happens within the borders of Europe, but then outside they have absolutely different standards. And uh, we, we heard this more than once, but the fact that finally this is brought to public awareness via court is actually yeah. quite interesting. Yeah, one thing to emphasize about this, of course, it will stay in the courts for years. You know, Samsung will lawyer up, you know, and there will be all sorts of arguments about whether there is jurisdiction, whether it's a valid claim within the French legal system, etc., etc. I think the really important thing is it's publicized it. You know, this is both this issue to many poor people's attention. It's actually going to be in the French legal system for a while, so hopefully it will be in the French and European press. So it's a good thing, even if the case fails. Yeah, absolutely. Next news on our agenda is this apocalypse of Microsoft eBooks. Can one of you tell us what went on with this? <clears throat> okay, simple, very short version of the story is this. Microsoft, a little while ago, decided they wanted to get into the publishing business. Now, there's this whole thing in the software world of trying to move from buying software to renting software. Those of us that work in the business know that you, know, you used to buy a license for your software in perpetuity. Nowadays, Microsoft are trying to, for instance, and other companies, are trying to move things over to a monthly rental model. And they decided they would also go into the e-publishing business, you know, selling people books, except it's not selling. What they're actually doing, in the same way, by the way, as any other big publisher like Amazon, Barnes & Noble, whoever, they're not really selling you the e-book. They're, they're lending it to you in the same way the library does. And, of course, unlike a library, you can't argue when they decide to remove, remove it from your e-collection. It magically vanishes overnight. And Microsoft have decided they don't want to be in the e-publishing business anymore. So if you bought any books from Microsoft... I'm sorry, you'll get your money back, but you won't have the book anymore soon. So basically what happened is Microsoft for about just over two years has been in the business of selling um, <laughs> your access to digital ebooks, except using yeah. digital rights management, which uh, Ben can give me a bit more technical backing, but basically it's something that is a software that controls your access to something, even if you've already downloaded it. Yeah, you know, when you open the book, your device says, oh, well, well hold on, this book's protected, so I'm going to go and ask a server somewhere, does this person have a license for the book? And, and, you know, if you get a note, then it doesn't open the book all the way. And all Microsoft are doing is turning off the server, which they're doing by choice, but some companies do it when they go out of business too. And, and the same thing, your mm. media is then rendered useless. And to be fair, it, the reason that probably they shut down the business is that it probably didn't do that well. So we don't know exactly how many people are affected by this. But while it's true that people will get their money back if they bought um, books, um, something that I found quite shocking is in case you've actually done some additional work on these books, if you've annotated them, if you highlighted something with the tools that were available to you, no matter how many books you had, from what I understand, you will receive just a $25 compensation, which 
might not necessarily equate to the amount of work you put <laughs> into this. Imagine if you're an academic or yeah. uh, someone that actually does some work with the text that you thought you bought. And when I say you thought you bought, it's because you pressed buy now as a button, mm. but you didn't necessarily actually buy a physical copy. What could be a big irony is um, if you bought it thinking this is greener, right? Don't use paper, don't use yeah. trees. And you've got this huge collection and, and it might not work anymore. Yeah, it's no, so it green. will not work anymore. In fact, it, in case you hear this radio show right now and you happen to have bought one of these books in the past, in case you've received a transaction with a refund uh, for that book, chances are, well, definitely that book is no longer available to you in whichever device you uh, were using to access it. Yeah. I mean, it, it is just a reminder that we don't actually own things in the digital world that we live in unless we actually do. I mean, it is possible to buy digital right management free content. And often we don't necessarily, we're not necessarily fully aware of some of the compromises depending on the platform we use to buy content. I think it's actually got more opaque because it used to be, I mean, I'm talking 10, 15 years ago, you needed like a client to download and to use something and maybe even to play it back or even a special device. Um, you know, iPods especially kind of tied everything into a, you had the Apple Store and you had the device that was on. You couldn't just move the MP3 files onto it. Um, and now we have all these things at our fingertips in smart devices, so we don't realize they're locked behind a filter and a DRM, but they are. Mm -hmm. But actually having full control over the way we can or can't use a piece of content is a bigger deal than some might think. Um, an example was given to me by our volunteer Panda, who refuses to buy any film that requires DRM because he prefers to be able to control the delay of mm -hmm. audio or... <clears throat> of uh, other parts <laughs> of that content depending on his personal setup at home. So yeah. depending on how you're watching something, you might need to control how that file operates and you're not able to do so. We're getting very technical, but basically the short version of this is in case you really like uh, a content, whether it's a album, a music album or a book or another piece of content that can be delivered in a digital format, actually sometimes owning a physical version of it mm -hmm. might be uh, much more safe in the long term. Yeah, also under, you have to understand your formats. If you're going to be a pl real player in the digital age and you're going to be an archivist or you're a music fan, if you don't understand your formats, you're screwed. Sorry. You, know, you need to know, for instance, MP3s don't have DRM. So if you've got a bunch of MP3s in your music, it may not be best quality, but they'll be with you forever, as long as you know the medium is there. And also one other point on DRM, by the way, is there are privacy issues, okay? If they've got a DRM server that knows every time you're reading the book, hey, you know, do you really want somebody to know every time you open a particular book or you know, view a particular film or how much of it you viewed, how quickly? They can, of course, all that information is not yours, it's theirs. So they can use it to analyze your habits. And guess what? Sell you more stuff in the end. And on top of that, often the argument that it's cheaper isn't necessarily true mm -hmm. anymore at this yeah. point. Uh, often once platforms are very established and have 
close to a monopoly on a sector, oh, yeah. actually the price of a physical copy isn't necessarily higher than <laughs> accessing no matter what content through a digital platform. But anyway, True. end of the tirade. Be careful <laughs> what you think you're buying, but you're not necessarily. On a lighter note, or perhaps a more hopeful note, um, it's still to do with Microsoft, actually. Um, CERN, the research uh, physics research center in Switzerland, has recently announced that it's migrating all of its software uh, to open source technology. And this happened as a result of Microsoft removing their status of academic institution, seriously, yeah. um, with a, therefore a tenfold increase of the license fees that an institution like CERN would have to pay to Microsoft. Um, and I guess it's because they don't have students, but they have researchers. I mean, let's leave it to them to figure out. Mm -hmm. But in any case, CERN decided, well, actually, we're going to move to free and open source software alternatives. So we don't even pay that neither one-tenth or 100% mm -hmm. of it we're going to pay once to come up with a solution and then reduce our costs uh, forever. So for people like you, this probably feels quite normal, but I wonder what you make of it. Well, as someone who buys software as part of my job, yeah, one of the things that's overlooked is not just the cost of buying commercial software, there's the bureaucratic overhead of having to maintain licenses. You know, if you've got a piece of free software, then you just download it, give it away. Now, free software in the pedantic sense means free to modify. But practically, for a software professional, it also means free to use. Yes, right? we like to concentrate both on the free <clears throat> as a beer and as in free as the freedom that comes with libre it. Is yes. The, yes, libre is the expression they like to use to distinguish. And yeah, it's... Intellectually, it's very nice to have free software, as in unencumbered, able to be modified. Practically, both for software professionals and for people around the world generally who don't have much money, of course, one of those details is another part of the digital divide is you've got to pay for software generally. If, on the other hand, you go to free software, Linux, LibreOffice, OpenOffice, and so on, you don't have to pay any money, period. Right? So... And as I said, for me, as a software professional, it's not so much the money, it's the bureaucracy of having to maintain licenses and make sure every damn system on your network has the right licenses. Mm -hmm. And you can be audited. Yeah. And that same labour could go into tweaks and maintenance of the software itself, which go to help all the other users around the world. That's yeah. the beauty of open source is people think, oh, you know, it's, it's free, it must be bad. But actually, no, it's free, so anyone can improve it. And, you know, as a net result, people yeah. like improving things for each other. And I guess we like to think that the institution that came up ultimately with the World Wide Web, like an open standard that allows us all to communicate and share uh, a lot of information and a lot more today, is finally making this transition to free and open uh, source software, which is probably more in line with their own technical capacity and ability to also control and manage the software. This yeah. is probably not for everyone. So many smaller organizations can't necessarily afford to dedicate resources to create a system that really works for them and maintain it directly. Don't know about the organizations that you work in. Um, no, my organization deliberately uses paid for software in quite a few places. 
We also use some free stuff. But, I, yeah, I think it's horses for courses. For some people, it's impractical. And it's also kind of fun, you know, to be able to make that balance yourself and say, well, actually, I'll use GIMP for my video editing because I can't afford Photoshop. But I'll run that on Windows because it's easy for me. You know? And we can all make those choices. You are listening to Restart Radio on Resonance 104.4 FM. And today we're discussing tech news leading us to how to make the most of computers that might appear obsolete to some people, but are far from being out of a good use. And so we've been inspired to start this conversation by uh, a thread on our own platform, restarters.net, uh, which if you're interested in repair or you want to contribute your skills, you should check out and, and join. Because someone, uh, Darren, one volunteer uh, involved in the platform suggested, why don't you look at what could one do uh, if they have a theoretically obsolete PC that doesn't have a resale value but could still do one or two things. And I know both of you have direct experience and knowledge of projects that actually could give inspiration to our listeners. So who wants to go first? Yeah, um, I so I, I grew up, you know, interested in tech, but without any really. Um, and for the first maybe 10 years from age seven to 17, everything came to me from someone else, either secondhand or found in a bin or given away. So I was used to going, what can this do rather than I want? Um, so, you know, I've kind of now that I have more tech as I am further along my kind of path in, in that I, I do find use of stuff. So um, kind of my alarm clock is an old phone because I was using it and I upgraded and went, well, I like the arrangement. So I have this independent thing that can't run out of battery if someone calls me or something like that. And that's a really simple one. It's like a personal organizer at home for music, alarms, and maybe, you know, uh, basic browsing and TV guide is an old mobile phone. So that's an easy one. Um, and lately the, the one I've been kind of fiddling with is a computer is I've been ripping my DVD collection just in case uh, something doesn't work anymore. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in, in that case, it's the dependence on physical media. You know, we're moving away from optical drives, so I'm mm -hmm. digitizing everything or re-digitizing. And that's just an old desktop PC uh, that I've used free and open source software. And, uh, you know, you feed it a DVD and you wait 15 minutes and it spits it back out and says next. Uh, so I have it actually next to my next to my sofa with no monitor and, you know, all day long I just feed it discs mm -hmm. and one day I'll have all my DVDs on a hard drive. Excellent, excellent, yeah. Um, one of the interesting examples somebody came up with for another free and open source project was headless laptops. Headless laptops. Yeah, it sounds a bit Tell dramatic. Tell us more. <laughs> sounds, yeah, it sounds more dramatic than it really is. If you think about a laptop, what is it? Well, it's a computer with a built-in keyboard and instead of a mouse it has a trackpad and it has a built-in display. Now, which things fail first? Well, batteries, but they can be replaced. Keyboards wear out, trackpads wear out, and eventually displays usually get cracked or dropped or something terrible happens. But in all those cases, usually the main computer part of it is still fully functional. So you can actually use, you know, if you plug in a display, plug in a keyboard, plug in a mouse, even though 
all of the inbuilt display keyboard and mouse are completely ruined, it may still work. Even without a battery, most laptops will work if you plug them into the mains. But that gives you a very small computer, which you can, for instance, slide onto a bookshelf and use as a media server. You know, some people use them as you know, a web server on their personal website, whatever. You know, it, it makes a very good mini server. And you don't have to leave the screen keyboard and mouse plugged in. You can set it going, doing whatever it's doing, ripping your DVD collection, serving your web pages, running a media free and open source media solution, uh, all those things. Then unplug your keyboard, mouse, and screen and leave it going. So, yeah, even a completely apparently trashed laptop can have a second life as a new computer. Mm. That's an interesting point, actually, is that that older tech that you're not using anymore sometimes lives in between the level of power of your current computer and your um, your home router modem type yeah. device in that if you want to do things that if you're more security conscious and you want to remove uh, advertising or you want to put a proxy on your entire home network, you can basically install it uh, on an older laptop or a simple PC and it sits at the start of your home network before the rest of your devices. So that's another good use for something that's, you know, more powerful than a little box you get free but not good enough to use every day now doing something like that is not necessarily easy enough for many of us what does it take to to turn an old machine into a server for privacy reasons for example uh so you know the first step is usually to install a, a lighter and free operating system something uh you know open source and, and well supported one of the beauties of open source operating systems is they arrive in all tiers you don't just get the newest uh, which requires the fasted pc there's something for older pcs something for no graphics so you'd find something like a linux distribution and then generally there's a guide people have done this and they like sharing and that's another great thing about the community so you know for a proxy someone will have a step-by-step -step. and it's a case of you know first install linux second install this package of of tools Third, find a network adapter. You can get a USB thing, you know, for £5, and then it will show you how to plug it in and set it up and, and troubleshoot. So in general, the first step is go search on the internet. And the role of open source cannot really be, open source software cannot really be underestimated in giving us a number of alternatives. Mm -hmm. Say if you inherited a machine that had proprietary software that's not even supported anymore, uh, there's plenty you can do uh, with freely available and modifiable and continuously improved by a community software. Exactly. And an another cool thing about, you know, um, mainstream operating systems slowly lose security backing uh, until they're fully unsupported, right? You know, Windows XP is around fully. We're not even touching it end of life, you know, not even for businesses. And uh, anything that's open source can still have security patches, but also... The fact you can inspect them means that people will look at it and go, either there is a, a bug or a backdoor here or actually a completely intentional manipulation of security. So they tend to get ironed out by the masses, even if there's one bad actor. And we know, Ben, that you are a keen computer gamer. And mm -hmm. have you experimented much with using older computers to allow you to go back in time and play games that the way they used to be played 10, 15 years ago. Yeah, I mean, I, I started out on old computers that were old even at the time, so it's always been my kind of behaviour to go, well, what did this thing run when it was good? Um, but now we have kind of a good 20, 30-year history of 
popular gaming, you can almost look at it as a time capsule and go, hey, this is like a top spec PC from 2002. What game was hard to run in 2001? And you can go get it. And, and quite often you can still get like a license to, to play the game from its makers. You know, they're cheaper, but they're available above board. And then you can you can play it in the context it was designed to be enjoyed. And there's there's kind of a fun in trying to do that. You know, I guess it's a little bit like uh, historic recreationalists, you know, going out on a Saturday saying, can we build this building and start a fire without any modern tools? But it's really fun if you're into it. Have you come across other uses that are linked to um, people letting go of uh, tech from a business environment? Like we, 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 we hear more and more that offices often are like getting rid of tech that no longer works not so much mm-hmm. it still works but it's no longer in line with their policies and for large organizations this there's ways their IT asset management companies but in many cases smaller organizations are not necessarily doing this maximizing on retaining value for these machines and yeah that to some, for instance, I know quite a few people who take stuff home, literally, and they'll refurbish it, put Linux on it, give it to their friends. You know, it can work on that level. And also, just in general, it's not just about the whole machine. It's about the parts. You know, in some cases, okay, it may be a bit of an old, big, clunky machine, but the motherboard is still fine. Somebody who knows what they're doing can, you know, find an old case and an old motherboard, you know, glue, you know, you can... What do they call it with cars cut and shut? You know, grab two old computers, make one computer out of it, that kind of thing. So the possibilities are endless here. You know, it doesn't have to be, oh, yes, it's an old computer refurbished. It could be get the components of one screen from another one that's not really high resolution enough to run to watch videos on, but is good enough to play old games on or do your office work on. Stick it all together and you've got a new machine. Yeah. And if you were to recommend where to start, Ben, on uh, retro gaming, uh, what would you recommend our listeners? Um, I actually have to say YouTube, for all their kind of mainstream bulk, uh, have a load of people exploring loads of niches. So, you know, whatever you're into specifically, it could be PC gaming or old console gaming or a certain style or modding and hacking, someone's kind of digging into that and sharing. So... I think we have a really cool thing where like the grassroots are at world level now. So even if there's only five people around the world, you can find the people you want to rub shoulders with and do that. And finally, the dilemma that people have asked us about in the past. But if the computer is so old, it's probably also not very energy efficient. Mm. True or not so true? True, but, and there's a massive but here, which is if you... This is we talked about mobile phones before. The problem is the embodied energy. How much energy does it make take to create a computer in the first place? Massive amounts. So most of the energy that you will ever use in that that was ever used in that computer is not in the use. You can leave it switched on for we reckon probably in the region tens of years more than. Yeah, I remember reading a report by the United <coughs> Nations University, if I'm not wrong, uh, quite a few years ago, saying that if you were looking, and at the time the energy 
improvements in energy efficiency in machine were more significant. If you were looking to upgrade your computer so that it would be a greener computer, you should first try to use it for about 19 years, if I'm not wrong, yeah, to, exactly. to kind of make it a real reason for upgrading for green credentials. Yeah. To put it another way, if you throw that computer away, you're throwing away all that energy. You're wasting it to say nothing of all the resources and so on. Even if you recycle it, look at the energy involved in recycling it, and you've lost the original energy used in building it. So you can use it for another 10 years easily before you know, you've actually wasted any energy. Absolutely. Thanks, you both, for your insights. And we just have enough time to mention an upcoming event. The last restart party in London before September is taking place in West Hampstead on Saturday the 20th at the West Hampstead Community Centre in uh, organised by Restarters Council to Kilburn. And thank you for listening to this show. You can find more information on this and all our radio show at therestartproject.org and follow us on social media at Restart uh, Project. And uh, we'll be taking a break with the summer break of Resonance and uh, more shows in the autumn. Thanks to Optonoise and Cassini Sound for our music, which was made with lasers, spinning plastic discs and discarded electronics. Until next time. Bye.